podcast for Filthy Casuals by Filthy Casuals. Hi everyone and welcome to a special episode 106 of Flashpoint, um, recorded on Sunday, 8th of November 2015. So as was promised on the last episode for those who were listening, this is a bit of a special episode where we're featuring a keynote from the PAX Oz convention which was held at time recording nearly two weeks ago. As always with me is my brilliant co-host Simon, how are you sir? I am not too bad, sir. How are you? Good. And as the man that was there on the spot and recorded, just do you want to give a brief synopsis of the keynote so that those that are keen know what it's about and those that aren't can turn off and go and listen to the newly recorded We Hate People episode 10? Yes, because those are your only two choices, people. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing else to listen to. Exactly. Anywhere. So this is the keynote from uh, 2015 PAX Oz. It was recorded on the Friday uh, with uh, Warren Spector, who was uh, probably best known for Deus Ex, although he's been involved with computer games for a very long time and has a wealth of experience and knowledge. And he's just talking about games and how gamers interact with games and, and how he thinks devs should interact with gamers through their games. So without further ado, let's listen to what Warren Spector's got to say. Enjoy, and we'll see you for episode 107. Well, it started uh, in 1978, so we're already well on the road to the Fed. I discovered Dungeons & Dragons that year. Uh, how many people have played Dungeons & Dragons? <laughs> so the rest of you didn't raise your hands, you're all lying, but I respect you. <laughs> The guy up there on the left is Bruce Sterling. Uh, he's a science fiction writer, and he was my first dungeon master. And I need to say, uh, he was a pretty good storyteller. Uh, and, and frankly, if, if you ever want to embarrass Bruce, just ask him about the Rat Gang's sacred quest in the river city of Shang. He doesn't really like talking about it, but it was an amazing <laughs> ten-year story that we told. And that was the key. It wasn't that Bruce was telling us a story. It was about us telling stories, me and my friends telling stories together with Bruce. Uh, that idea of collaborative storytelling was the magic about Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and since 1978 until today, that's the only thing I've been interested in doing. Making games that, that recreate that feeling that I had in 1978 when I discovered Dungeons and Dragons. Um, so like I said, it's kind of pathetic, but there you go. Um, it's kind of important though because uh, it's something that only games can do. Think about that. We are all part of a medium that can do something no other medium can do, collaborative story. And I think it's important that we embrace that capability, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. So, putting it another way, um, I want to talk about the ways in which games are different than other media. Uh, you know, there are a lot of us who seem to have movie envy. A lot of people want to make interactive movies uh, or make games that are more like TV or something else like that. Uh, I want to talk about games as games, uh, because I think in a lot of ways, we're not just different from other media. We're all gamers here. We're actually better. (laughs) (laughs) So when you leave here, I hope you have a better understanding, or at least a a better understanding of what I think is cool and unique and makes us better. So what's so important? Oh, man, unique, great. Who cares at some level? Uh, I'm going to talk about importance a lot today. 
But it's important because I, I don't think we're a solved problem. There are a lot of people who looked at, I'm not going to call anybody out, game X or game Y, and said, that's our citizen king. Okay, first of all, that shows that there's still some movie in me. <laughs> um, and there are some indies who are going some, really someplace special, right? But we're not a solved problem. And frankly, even in the, not even, especially in the mainstream, I think we're kind of in a rut. Okay, let's, let's just face it. We're in a rut. It's like we've forgotten something important uh, about what made games special. Uh, and so, to start, let me go down memory lane where we've been here. Just, just very briefly. I promise we won't be much of a history lesson. Um, so, <laughs> th this is me when I was a kid. Um, when I was growing up, things, things were a little different. They weren't like they are today. Uh, these were games. Right? You could play chess with your dad, which I did. You could play Monopoly with your uh, your family, which you know, until we ended up arguing with each other all the time about you know who, who owed who rent. Um, but games were literally just a way to pass some time with family and friends. There were nothing more than that. You know, there weren't exactly uh, you know Monopoly conventions of any scope. Actually, there were. That's what's um, anyway. Computers look like this, right? 16K monsters <laughs> operated by guys in white lab coats. And I knew that because when I was in fourth grade, I actually went into a Honeywell uh, showroom. And you're know, like a little fourth grade me, you know, it was me walking into a big store. And I asked if they had any brochures. And a guy in a white lab coat, literally in a white lab coat, came out and threw me out of the store. Um, but so that was computers back then. This will blow you away. This was my first home computer. Uh, anybody remember the Digicom one? Forget I'm not going to ask you. And it was great playing Call of Duty on that, I got you. <laughs> but things were different, okay? And then this happened. Yeah, oh yeah, people remember that one. Computers um, started looking like that. There was no white lab code necessary. Uh, you could even play games on them, though, you know, if you got more than one color, green, you were lucky. Uh, and I'm not going to imitate the sounds, but everybody in this room can imitate the sound of an Apple II. Um, and we all thought it was a good idea that the user interface would use every key on the keyboard. That was exciting. Uh, I don't know what we were thinking. But the games were really special, especially to people who couldn't get dates. Uh, so, but the games were really special. And no one knew anything. Every game was unique. There were no genres, there were no conventions, there were no rules. Uh, every game was unique in some sense, in content, in style, uh, in every way, okay? Uh, there had never been anything like them before. Even when we were trying to imitate other things, we failed. Everything was unique. Uh, we couldn't have imitated other media if we wanted to. And then nothing changed for five to ten years. Our graphics got better, our sound got better. Uh, designers were creating the medium on the fly, and you know, oh my gosh, the first cinematic adventure uh, the first, you know, actual role-playing game that reminded people a little bit of D&D. Um, the world of game thought was a frontier back then in the 70s and 80s and the early 90s. Uh, and the people who made those games were real pioneers. Uh, and they created the genres, the rules, the conventions, that everything about gaming is built on today. And you know what? No one cared. Uh, no one cared about the new medium. No one cared about its new qualities. No one cared about its artistry. Games were for kids, and not the cool ones, to be clear. Um, they were a fad. If you waited a while, they were going to go away. The, frankly, the only people who paid any attention to games back then were the people who thought that they were destroying the youth of America and the world. Um, they were dangerous and damaging. That was all anybody thought about. 
But then, time marches on. Uh, years passed, decades flew by, and games and the audience changed pretty radically. To the point where today, I mean, remember when games were for geeks? Those days were long gone, right? Millions and millions and millions of people play games. Uh, core gamers, as I assume most of you are, you are a part of that world. But think about normal humans for a minute. Okay? <laughs> How many people out there in the real world play a game on their smartphone? How many people play poker online or, you know, daily uh, fantasy football or something? Um, whether they self-define as gamers or not, everyone's a gamer now. And it's not just that our audience is bigger. If I had been, if I'd been thinking, I actually wanted to put a picture up here of my, my 70-something mother-in-law playing Guitar Hero. Right? Um, it's true. It's amazing. It's wonderful. Um, even U.S. Senators, that's John McCain on the left side there. He was actually playing online poker during a session of Congress. You know? <laughs> Pay attention. You know? um, but more women play games now than men. And the, the average age of gamers topped 30 years ago. So we've got not just a bigger audience, but a more diverse one. And as an economic force, after decades of lying that we're bigger than Hollywood, we're actually bigger than Hollywood. <laughs> we're actually bigger than the music business. Worldwide, more people pay money to play games than to watch movies or listen to music. That's amazing. There's uh, uh, one analyst that actually predicted that this year we're going to top $111 billion in revenue. That's an enormous number. So things have changed. And then, I don't know how it is here, but back home where I come from, uh, half the, the Congress and, and half the Senate and the House of Representatives basically want to censor us. I don't know if you have that same problem here. But we need to Thank you, my work here is done. <laughs> uh, you know, when... When your uh, lawmakers are after you, you know you've made it, right? I mean, that's, that's the thing. So, culturally, financially, legally, I guess, uh, we're, we're right in the cultural crosshairs. We've changed a lot of people's lives. Um, but all that money and all that cultural credibility are not enough, okay? Um, if we want to cement our place in the media landscape, we still have work to do. Uh, from a creative standpoint, I think we still have work to do. Um, we're something new. The stuff that you guys live every day is something new, and I don't think we revel enough about that. I don't think we live enough in that world of being new and original. So, despite all of our outward success, we've only begun to scratch the surface of what we can do as a media. Scratching the surface. We're still full of potential. I don't want to see us squander it. Uh, and to ensure that, uh, that we don't, I think we need to honor what makes us unique. We're all the way back to where I started. So, what does make us unique? Uh, it's vital to our future. Okay, so what do I think makes us unique? There are four elements, uh, and hopefully we do better than the Fantastic Four movies. <laughs> uh, I need to find a new image for that. Uh, but there are four critical things, right? The thing, it's fantastic. No. Um, okay, we can transport players to places they could never go any other way, other times and other places. Uh, it isn't LeBron James dunking in a game, it's you. It isn't some heroic jockey in the Melbourne Cup, you know, whipping that horse, it's you. Uh, it isn't uh, another unnamed character, well, it's an unnamed character. It is you in Bioshock, okay, doing all that stuff. We can transport you in a way that no other medium can, no other medium can do that. 
We can immerse you in another world. We can make you believe you're in that other world. Uh, and frankly, with VR making a comeback, I think this aspect of gaming is going to go way up. No other medium can do that. No other medium can make you believe you are in another world. No other medium, we're the only medium of human history that requires your participation to be whole, to work. If you don't do something in a game, everything just stops. If you stop watching a movie, I've got a really strong hunch that the, the film keeps unwinding in the same way without you, you know? Uh, if you put a book down on your night table when you go to bed at night, I suspect the words don't reorder themselves on the page. If they do, you know, talk to me later because I want to I meet you. But, uh, no other medium in human history but has depended on its users for its very existence. No other medium in history. And we're the first medium in history that's been able to respond, you know? Uh, we're the first medium where a creator does something, a player does something, and then the, the world responds to that. No other medium in history has been able to do that. Those four things, completely new in the history of human time. Think about that for a second, next time you're killing stuff in, in whatever your favorite killing stuff is. <laughs> uh, in other words, we're the first medium of communication ever. I keep going back to it, I'm just so blown away by the first medium in human history that does X. And we have like four of them. We're the first two-way medium ever, right? Uh, we turn consumers into collaborators of the creative process. And what that means to me, these are like two of the most important words in the world to me. Shared authorship. We are alone among the arts where we can share the responsibilities and the joy of creativity with people. It's not just about telling people something. I don't tell you folks stuff when you're playing one of my games. We're talking to each other, okay? We're going to come back to that in a minute, too. So, sharing authorship means offering people the chance to make significant choices, to take control of your experience, right? Uh, in traditional media, you know, a character is funneled down a path, uh, a series of shots determined by a director, or a series of words on a page created by an author. Uh, by contrast, players get to make the decisions. They get to determine that series of events in a game. Those choices have consequences. A lot of people think my games are about choice. And I always tell them, no, the choices are, are irrelevant. They're a waste of time. What's really cool and interesting is when I get to show you the consequences of your choices, here's the price you just paid for doing what you said you wanted to do. That's what's cool. If I do thing X, thing Y happens in the game. Again, something new to the world. And in a really cool game, if you do thing X, it could be thing Y or thing A or thing B, and you don't actually know which one's going to happen, but that's a whole other story. Um, those consequences are made apparent when the game responds, okay? Uh, you get to see what happens and experience what happens after you pull that trigger or you don't pull that trigger, either way. And this is, this is the magic for me right here. All of that adds up to every play session is unique. If you're playing a game and everything you do is exactly the same as every other player does, my advice to you would be to put that game away, never play it again, and find a game that's actually letting you do something interesting, okay? Um, every play session is unique. It's in your hands. Okay. And what that means is, player experience comes first. Right? Games should not be about how clever and creative you are as a designer. How many of you actually make games? Okay, so mostly gamers here. If you're playing games where you're thinking how clever and creative the designer is, put that game aside too and find one that's going to let you show off a little bit. Okay? Designers get off the stage and put players on. Okay? Player experience comes first, uh, and that's more important than the developer's creativity, uh, or message, 
or intent. Okay. Uh, if as a developer, what you want to do is show off, show off how clever you are, get out of my meeting, right? Just go make a movie or something, because that's really what you should be doing. Uh, and player expression comes first. We want to empower players. You want to be empowered as players, okay, to do what you want to do. Uh, now, all games offer some le level of what, what, what I'll call player expression. You get to express yourself as you play. Um, some of them offer low expression. I'm gonna, I'm about to ensure that I never work again, <laughs> so get ready for it. Um, games of low expression, uh, they're mostly about the developers telling you how clever they are. Right? Your job as a player is to, to um, execute against something that you are told to do. Right? It's about how good you are at doing what you're told to do. For example, okay, never going to work with it's not that games like this are bad, okay? That I know someone's going to tweet, Warren says Uncharted sucked. Uh, and that is not the case, okay? That is not what I believe. Um, but they limit your ability to interact with the game world so the story can unfold the way the storyteller wants it to unfold, right? Uh, you have very limited uh, ability to express yourself. It's about how do you accomplish a predetermined task to get to the next plot point, right? It's a great story, better story than I'll ever tell in a game, but it's not a player story, it's not your story. Same thing with Tetris, actually, just to go completely the opposite direction. Um, you get to decide how and when to rotate and drop a particular piece, but that's all you get to do, not much in the way of player control. Then there are games of medium expression, okay, where you get the illusion that you're actually expressing yourself, that you're actually doing something unique and, and wonderful yourself, that you're deciding to do it. Um, but still, I love The Walking Dead. I love The Walking Dead, okay? And there's nothing wrong with medium player expression, just to be clear, okay? Um, but the choices you have to make, do you shoot the kid or not shoot the kid? Do you take the supplies or not, not take the supplies? They're compelling choices, and they're, they're, these are really wonderful names. But they're designer-driven, not player-driven, okay? Every choice in a game like this has been pre-scripted, handwritten by a designer writer somewhere. Uh, and the effects of that choice have been predetermined by the developers. Um, and I think that's fine, but there's very limited stuff that players actually get to do. Henry, same, same sort of thing. Another amazing experience. I adore playing this game. Uh, and they can tell great stories, better than I will ever tell in my life as a game developer. They tell better stories uh, because no player will ever do anything surprising or unaccounted for. They're basically like five movie scripts all mashed together, you know. Uh, and you're just kind of picking which script you're, you're, uh, you're telling at any given point in time. Okay. Um, I don't know that these games, the low expression or medium expression games, actually do a great job of explaining what makes us different. They're wonderful, but these are the ones that get my shorts in the mouth. Okay. The games that go further than giving you the illusion that you're in control are actually putting you in control in very powerful, profound ways. I certainly don't make games like this. But fighting games, I mean, think about that. Which character do I play? What move do I do? When do I do that move? How and when do I counter that other move? No two fighting games ever play out the same way. It's entirely in your hands, okay? It's, it's amazing. I mean, just the skill required is pretty insane, but just what you get to do when you're playing fighting games is pretty remarkable. It could only happen in a video game. Other extreme, The Sims, um, way, way, way expressive. Players get to determine everything in these games. They're all about player expression. Um, and there are other high expression games, too. What I call high expression games. 
Um, every football game, I can't believe I'm about to say it, uh, they, they take video games to a new higher level of art. It's, it's unbelievable. It's all about you deciding how you're going to interact with this world and doing stuff that no one in the world has ever done before. Uh, and other games like Dishonored, of course, uh, are pushing games in a pretty amazing direction. So, thinking about that high expression stuff one, a different way. Games are dialogues, okay? Uh, there's a dialogue going on, and it's weird, there's kind of a dialogue going on between you and me right now. I mean, if I see people start to fall asleep and stuff, I'm probably going to change the way I talk. Uh, but video game guys do that all the time. They're dialogues between players and developers. Um, and, you know, remember, in other media, audiences are shown things or told things. Uh, you get to interpret what you're told or shown, but that's it, okay? Uh, in a game, you're really talking to the developer. Every second you're playing, you're talking to the developer. Uh, and in any dialogue, everybody has a role to play. Right? So, uh, here's what developers do. We tell you, save the princess. And by the way, jump on 10 mushrooms before you do it. Okay. Um, save the world from alien invasion. Go kill those 10 guys. We tell you what you're supposed to do. That's the developer's job. We create rules. Okay? Those are the legal actions that can take place in the game. We tell you what you can and can't do. Right? Uh, that might be limited to which weapon do I use to kill that thing? Uh, or it might be something as complex as, if you fire a gun in this room, alarms will go off, people will start running and screaming, and then you'll have to deal with that. You're slowly more complex than that. We offer tools. We give you that gun I just mentioned. Um, we give you a crossbow, or a, an explosive barrel, or a computer, or a mushroom. We give you tools. We provide you sounds and images so you can see what you're doing and see the consequences of what you've just done. And then we, uh, we provide obstacles. We throw things in your way that you have to get packed. Uh, we have to say, no, that door looks like a door, but you can't get through it. Uh, we give you constraints. Okay. And all of that uh, is, is to maximize your ability to, to, for players to express themselves. Okay. So we give you the tools to discover and create your own gameplay. Um, we provide a context, we tell you why what you're doing is important, which I'll come back to in a minute. Uh, it's like in D&D, we provide a skeleton of a story, but not the whole story. You have to finish the story for us. We bound your experience. <laughs> you guys are all sick. <laughs> what is your fault? Anyway, um, we put a box around what you can do, okay? But within that box, you can do whatever you want. When we're at our best, those high expression games, they don't, they don't put you on rails, they put you in a box. Okay? So we sort of say, this is the boundary of what can happen, but you can do whatever you want within those boundaries. Okay? We don't always do that, but we can, I think we should. So that's a lot of power for developers. We do all of that stuff. But what do the players do? Where do they get their Well, designers create goals. I just said that. You know, save the universe and kill those ten things on the way to doing it. But how do you kill those ten things? How do you save the world? That's up to you. You get to make a plan. Okay? Looking at the, the images and hearing the sounds and knowing what the goal is, you get to make a plan. And then you get to execute. You get to say, okay, I know what I want to do now. Now I'm going to go and do it. Plan, plan, plan. Execute, execute, execute. And then you move on to the next challenge. You agree as a player. You're going to come up with a plan, execute that plan, see what happens. Make a new plan, execute plan, see what happens. We're going to keep going. Okay? And in those games of high expression that I was talking about that I love so much, uh, every time you play, you can come up with a new plan. 
The rules and tools allow you to come up with a new plan. So every play session is unique. Keep coming back to that. Every play session is unique. So what does that mean for who owns what? Okay. In those low expression games I was talking about, you are basically on rails. You don't own a whole lot in those. In games of medium expression, uh, you own a little bit more. But in those high expression games, here's the way it breaks down. Uh, players own the minute to minute. Okay? I did this, and then I did this, and then I did this. Anybody, okay, those of you who play DD, have you ever described your, uh, a play session to a friend or to a family member? Have you ever described the story of a, of a DD session? It's like the most boring story in the world. It really does what's happening. I did this, and then we did this, and then this happened, and then that happened, and then that happened. And it's like, it, it's boring. But it's Moby Dick to you, because you're the one who did it, right? And what the, the designers do, what the game master does, is decide why that's important. So it's not just, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. What the developer, what the designer does is say, and here's why it's important. Your brother was kidnapped by terrorists, and that's why you're doing this and this and this and this and this. Okay. So players do stuff, and designers say why that stuff's important. That's the nature of that dialogue I was talking about. That's the nature of collaboration. Okay. Everybody has to play their part in a game where the game doesn't work. Um, this is a new idea. Okay, let me just keep going. 1981. This idea was apparent. This idea that games are a collaboration between players and developers. Um, anybody know who Orson Pitscott Card is? And has anybody not read Ender's Game? You raise your hand and embarrass yourself if you haven't read Ender's Game. Leave right now. <laughs> Go read the book. You come back. I'll still be talking when you're done. Um, no, this Orson Scott Card uh, is an author. He's been around forever. There was a magazine called Compute. Uh, in 1981, March of 1981, he said, this is a horrible thing to do. I'm going to read you a quote. Okay? It's, it's, it's an amazing quote. I don't want to get it wrong. So here, here it is. Someone at every game design company should have the full-time job of saying, why aren't we letting the player decide that? When they let unnecessary limitations creep into a game, game rights, he called us game rights. I love that. I wish we still did it. Game rights reveal that they don't yet understand their own art. They've chosen to work with the most liberating of media, and yet they snatch back with their left hand what they offered us with their right. Remember game rights. The power and beauty of the art of game making is that you and the collator collaborate to create the final story. Every freedom that you can give to the player is an artistic victory, and every needless boundary in your game should feel to you like a failure. Yowza. Those are words to live by. He doesn't talk about not imposing limitations. He talks about not imposing unnecessary limitations. He doesn't talk about not imposing boundaries. He talks about not imposing unnecessary boundaries. He doesn't talk about developers advocating their creative responsibility. I'm not willing to do that. Okay? I got a story I want to tell. I just want to tell it with you. Okay? But I'm not giving up my creative responsibility. And he's talking, not talking about playing without constraints. There are a lot of people who think, you know, ooh, the holodeck is the future. Ooh, play without constraints. Do whatever you want, anytime you want. I don't think that's the right answer. It's about collaboration. Uh, it's something that, that Card said in 1981. It's crazy. And so we're back to this. Shared authorship. Um, but how do we know if you succeed? Like, as a developer, how do we know if we've actually succeeded in creating a game that appropriately shares authorship? As a player, how do you know if you're playing a game 
that is giving you the maximum ability to, uh, to express yourself. Okay? And think about that. You are expressing yourself as you play. You're not just running around, you know, talking to people and collecting mushrooms and, you know, killing stuff. Um, so, how are you going to know? Well, the key is listen. It's, it's such an astonishing idea. Uh, listen to what players are saying. And here's kind of what you want to hear. Uh, if you hear players saying, I never thought to try that. Or someone says, I did this thing in this game. I did, you know, I, I went left and then I went right and then I jumped and then I shot. And someone says, wow, I went right and then I went left and then I didn't shoot. If you hear that kind of conversation happening, you know you've created a game where you're really empowering players or you're playing a game that, where you have been truly empowered. Um, if you hear people saying this, I only solved that problem a different way. And then I'll have to go back and play that again and see if something different happens. Uh, that's how you know you're going to succeed. That weapon is useless. It's my favorite. That's a true story, actually. There was a point in uh, the making of Deus Ex, a game I made 15 years ago now, which is horrifying. Um, the team wanted to cut the pistol, the weakest weapon in the game. I said, no, I love the pistol. If you use the pistol in connection with explosive barrels uh, and other in-world objects, it's really cool that one shot from a pistol can be really powerful if you use it right. It makes me think. So if you hear people arguing about which weapon is the best and not agreeing about it, you, you succeed. This is another true story. I didn't know that part of the map existed. Uh, there was a part of Deus Ex where you could actually, there was a prison under UNATCO headquarters. There was an organization you worked, on, called, worked for called UNATCO. And there was a prison underneath it. And one player would say, wasn't it cool when you got to that prison under UNATCO headquarters and interacted with that prisoner there? And someone else would say, what prison? You know, that was success because I knew that people were having unique experiences. That was success. And then uh, another one, is that going to work? I was watching one of our testers demonstrate data sets for a, a, an executive, a publishing side executive, a year after we shipped the game. Okay, so think about this. First of all, don't ask why a, an, an executive from a company that had published a game that won like 30 Game of the Year awards needed to have the game demoed a year after we shipped. Don't ask about that. <laughs> uh, that tells you so much about how the game business works. I really want to work with But he was showing off this, this part of the game. And it was a part of the game that I had seen a thousand people do a thousand times. And I had played through myself. There were, there were three problems in this one space. And I knew what problems he was trying to solve. And I, like I said, I played through it a hundred times. And I watched him take an explosive barrel and move it over here and then put a, a light attack munition on a wall over there and then move a, a, a gas barrel over. I, I watched him setting up these little pieces of a puzzle like, a, it, like it was a chess game. And I was watching, knowing what he was trying to solve, and I was just like, is that going to work? Is that going to solve those problems? And then he stepped back and from a place of hiding took one shot with the pistol, my favorite weapon, took one shot with the pistol and in an instant solved three, three game problems. And I fell on the floor. I mean, a year after we shipped the game, a player did something that I suspect no one in the world had ever done before. And it worked. That was success. And, and then, maybe best of all, if you have players saying, how could you do that? How could you kill that guy? I didn't kill that guy. How could you kill that guy? Uh, that's kind of success. And even better, uh, if you're playing a game 
I don't want to put down games. I guess I kind of do. But, um, <laughs> you know, is at the end of the game, what you're doing is you're talking about, wasn't it cool when you leaped across that chasm and you almost missed the jump and you, you pulled yourself up by your fingertips and then the Tyrannosaurus Rex showed up and you shot him in the face with the rocket gun and everybody goes, yeah, it was cool when I did that too. Like, how interactive is that real? I mean, just stop it. Like, you're a player and you're doing exactly the same thing that every other player and then you said, yeah, it was cool when I killed that boss by jumping on his head 16 times and taking the smell of sweat socks and putting him in the vat of cheese and throwing it up with a stick of doom. You know, like, if that's what you're talking about at the end of the game, like, okay, maybe, maybe that's a game that you want to play. It's not one that I want to play. At the end of the game, what I want to have people do is, like, I'm, I'm, again, this to be an egomaniacal fool for a second. Um, on Deus Ex, we didn't hear people talking about how they killed that, the bad guy. We had people talking about how should the world be is the world better off in a new dark age where players have free will? Is it better to be in a world that's controlled by a secret organization, but they have the illusion of free will? Or is it better to have a world that's all in the control of one enormous sentient AI uh, and have no free will, but world peace? It was really cool hearing people describe that kind of uh, ending, describe how they thought the world should be. I thought that was pretty cool. So you recognize success if you hear people talking about the way they ended the game. So that's how you know you succeed. And, you know, I wish more, more developers thought the way I do, because I am an egomaniac. But uh, let, me, let me talk to you a little bit about some of the games that I've worked on uh, and how they've exemplified this idea of shared authorship. So this was the game that started it all for me. Uh, Richard Garriott uh, and I worked on the design for Ultima 6. And one of our rules, this was, this was kind of a primitive way of sharing authorship with players. We kind of had a rule that every puzzle in the game would be solvable at least two ways. Right? But there was one puzzle we couldn't figure out how to, uh, we, we only had one solution for it. And here's, here's the puzzle. There was a portcullis, okay, that blocked your path. The player and his party came in from this side. And on this side, there was a lever that you had to flip to raise the portcullis. So you needed the telekinesis spell to flip that lever. And I watched one of our testers. He was at that place, had to flip the lever, portcullis. He was on the wrong side. And he didn't have the telekinesis spell yet. So I was sitting there going, oh, oh he's screwed. <laughs> and, and then what he did was, he, in his party, he had a, char a character named Sherry the Mouse, who was, in fact, as you might expect, a mouse. And we simulated the world well enough that that mouse was actually pretty small. And the portcullis had a little gap at the bottom. And what he did was he had Sherry the mouse go under the portcullis, stand next to the lever, and flip it, which was not a solution to the puzzle designed by the developer. And that was another moment where I fell on the floor. And when I picked myself up, I said, that is the single coolest thing I have ever seen in my entire life as a gamer. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life making that happen. Not an accident. I want it to happen on purpose. Okay. And I have spent the rest of my career trying to recreate that moment of sharing the mouse flipping the web. Uh, Underworld. Underworld uh, shipped in 1992. Uh, by the way, most people won't remember it was the first real time 3D fully textured game in history. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, take that one if it's time. We should first. Uh, anyway, it combined action and RPG elements in a way that no other game had. 
Uh, and it introduced this sort of factional gameplay. And so how you interacted with one faction over another actually determined how the story played out. You could influence how the story played out. So that was a little step forward. Uh, Thief, first of all, I get way too much credit for Thief. I worked on it for one year in the middle of a three-year development cycle. So uh, I love the game, but I can't take any credit for it uh, at all, really. Um, but it took player choice and believable consequences to a whole new level. Um, that was the first game where I really listened to players and heard them describe completely different experiences after they got done with the game. Really powerful stuff. Uh, Deus Ex, uh, clearly the, the first time I felt like uh, my teams and I put together all pieces of shared authorship. Um, you really could get through that game killing nothing. We thought there were two players, two characters you had to kill, actually. And we got a, um, an email from a player who said, I got through the game without killing anybody. And we called him a liar. And he said, send us your playthrough. And we played through it, and he was right. Uh, the, again, the developers didn't even know that you could play the game without killing anybody. You could also get through it killing everything that moved um, <laughs> if you wanted. And hey, imagine the poor, uh, the poor playtesters who had to test that game. You know, Get through this game killing nothing. Get through this game killing everything. You know, We had them testing it out. Never use an, an augmentation, ever. You know? Never use a skill, ever. It was pretty intense. Um, but that game kind of put all the pieces together and let you really tell your own stories. Um, you don't talk about these much. <laughs> no, um, 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 okay, can we talk? Um, the, the whole idea here was to take that idea to a mainstream audience. Okay, uh, and we didn't do a very good job. <laughs> All right, let's let's really uh, Epic Mickey. How many of you sent me hate mail about making a Mickey Mouse game? Right? Sure. No, okay. Um, this really was an attempt to take that idea of choice and consequence to a mainstream audience. Um, and, you know, to be frank, we did. Uh, I wanted to, they, Pixar, they, they talk a lot about making entertainment for everyone. And I got thinking, why can't a game do that? Uh, and so we tried to make a game for everyone. And then I thought, hey, you know, I've got Mickey Mouse as my star. I bet I can get every Disney fan to play a game of choice and consequence and get that idea out to a mainstream audience. And, and frankly, we, we really did. It sold better than any game I've ever worked on, and I got more and more heartfelt fan mail about that than any game I've ever worked on. The only people who hated Disney Epic Mickey were all of you. <laughs> uh, poor gamers kind of lost them, got lots of hate mail, but anyway. But, okay, so... If you go back and check these games out, and anybody who mentions the word camera right now is going to be asked to leave, <laughs> but if you go back and play what you will see is a game that offers uh, player expression possibilities that go so far beyond Deus Ex uh, or any other game I've worked on. It's really all there. That, that underlying philosophy is really there. Uh, no joke. Um, and uh, I, I would urge you to try it. So just, I've got a, a, a little while here, um, so I, I want to show a video. I don't know that we ever showed this publicly, but for those of you who don't know what Epic Mickey is all about, here's a, a little video we did uh, right after we shipped the first one. Howdy folks, Horace Horsecaller here. We got some pretty nifty stuff to show you from our upcoming adventure. So without further ado, you can go ahead and fade to that nifty stuff now.
joy. Absolute mustn't play. But that was only the beginning. All is well in Wasteland. Until an earthquake throws Wasteland into chaos. And the only one who can save the day is... So there was one, Ninja Gold. I was working with uh, John Wood, from back from John Wood. Uh, we were creating a world uh, of, about modern-day ninjas, uh, Katsato, modern-day ninja. Uh, and uh, it was going to be kind of Deus Ex meets Part 4. Uh, but uh, the big thing was going to be this crazy factional gameplay stuff. You could actually uh, serve the, the interests of international law enforcement or your father's criminal empire uh, or an international crime organization. Uh, and the game was going to play out differently uh, based on those choices. Um, so just to show you a little bit of where we were going with that, this is a very short, silent video uh, of uh, our movement test. That you can't actually see. Oh. So that was 2004. And around the same time, uh, I was also working on a game called Sleeping Giants. So I know set the world I created with my lovely wife, Caroline, who was here this weekend. And we'll be doing a panel shortly. Um, but it was kind of a fantasy RPG action hybrid, sort of like Deus Ex with a fantasy set, uh, featuring groundbreaking elemental magic, uh, all physics driven, not scripted stuff. You were able to move or you know, flatten mountains, you know, make rivers rise or fall. Um, you were going to create a tornado or, or kill a tornado, uh, become an honest dragons, obviously. Um, we were just starting to work on what I call the virtual dungeon master. We were going to be able to change gameplay dynamically based on how you were playing the game. Um, but we never made it. But here's a trailer uh, that we did. Um, this is all actual in-game footage, by the way, 2004. 
Anyway, so that, that was where I wanted to go with, uh, with that shared authorship stuff. So here's the question. Uh, for years, my friends and I wondered why everyone doesn't make games like this. Um, yeah, we, we have that kind of ego. Um, and it, but if I'm being honest, lots of people actually have. I already talked about Tetris. Um, you know, every, every time you play, it's a different story, right? Um, you know, it's... It's a game that can only exist as a video game. So technically, Tetris sort of fits that shared ownership model. I already mentioned John Madden football. Um, all sports sims, you know, managed to uh, fit the criteria for shared ownership. Players call the plays, execute, make a plan, execute, uh, game response appropriate, all that stuff. Um, no two games should play out the same way. Uh, it's classic shared ownership stuff. Real-time strategy games, uh, they have clear goals, clear rules, robust tools. You can play them forever, no two games alike. Uh, Elder Scrolls games. Usually, I, I would expect applause there, but okay. Um, <laughs> not that I have anything to do with Skyrim. Um, but you get to explore the world and interact with however you want. Uh, tons of characters who respond to your choices. Uh, very different than anyone else's games, but classic shared ownership stuff. Uh, Fallout. Did you have to fall out and not spend And no new politics. Uh, I already talked about The Sims. Uh, sometimes I think Roy bends over too far backwards to avoid playing his role in that developer-player dialogue, but who might argue with Will Wright? Um, Grand Theft Auto, uh, when GTA 3 came out, it was mind-boggling in every game they've done since, if you can get past the reprehensible content. Um, okay, sorry, editorial. Uh, but they gave us a world that was so open-ended and, and bigger and just more robust and player expressive than anything anybody ever done. It was, it was pretty remarkable when it came out. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of playing the meter games. I call them playing the meter. Like, ooh, I don't want to be light side. I don't want to be dark side. You know? Um, but uh, you, you have to respect the, what they did for this kind of game to get it out of the hands of more people. Um, Fable, same thing. Another play the meter game. Right? Ooh, I need it. I'm good. Look, I have points. Look, I don't. Um, but uh, it certainly belongs in the company games here. Uh, Mass Effect, high profile. Uh, overall, I, I have to say that Mass Effect is probably that series is probably the best at, uh, best expression of that shared authorship idea that I can point to, uh, unless maybe it's this. <laughs> expect me to, to be angry and I don't get to make those extremes anymore. But actually it's really cool. Uh, the, the fact that it's, it's bigger than anything you know, that my team and I ever imagined and it goes on without us is pretty pretty amazing. Uh, and folks at that I was watching, I really get it. So it's, uh, I'm pretty happy to see it continuing without me. Uh, and again, yeah, Dishonored. Uh, it's totally honest the legacy of Looking Glass and, and, uh, and, and Judging Point. Um, and there are more every day. So I, I'm really encouraged by all of this. Um, nowadays, I mean, there's room for a Candy Crush side, uh, which I think expresses, strangely enough, uh, everything I'm talking about here. Uh, there's certainly room for World of Warcraft. Ordinarily, I would say my wife is playing right now because I'm usually pretty safe saying that at the point of time and day or night and day of week. But she's sitting right here, so I'm, <laughs> I, I'm now in trouble. Anybody got that? <laughs> Uh, yeah, anyway, uh, there's an overarching narrative uh, in there, obviously, but how you interact with it is, is kind of up to you. 
There's room for retro indie games, basically made by one person, uh, where you are clearly in a dialogue with the creator of that game about the final political and social statements. Uh, and you're definitely making consequential decisions as you play. Uh, there's room for emotional journeys where the only real narrative is the one that you tell as you play. Oh my God, is there room for moments? <laughs> Holy cow. Uh, and players are clearly in control. No two players are, you know, no two playthroughs are the same. It's like the fighting games of old. And do I have to... Is there anybody that has Really? Okay. Uh, and then soon, there are a couple more. Uh, this one for my friends. Get ready for it. Um, so Lord British Richard Garrett is making a successor to his earlier Ultimate Games, the ones that inspired me so much. So that's coming. And then... Um, uh, also coming is uh, Underworld Ascendant, being made by some of the same people who worked on Underworld back when, when I was working with them. And I'm consulting on this, so I'm a little prejudiced, uh, but I think you're going to like it. It'll definitely be a power to tell your own story. And uh, I, I've got a, a quick video, it's about two minutes, uh, of where this is going. What you can't see in any two-minute video is the, the idea of player choice. You're really going to get to play through the encounter you're going to see here in so many different ways. Yeah, it's really going to going to be uh, something special for that shared authorship idea. So here's a little bit about the world This is the place, the Elemental Forge. Some of our fans have asked us what other options the player could have had in our most recent teaser video. Let's take a look at how we as developers review the choices in a situation like this. Torven Earth magic never fails to impress. Each of these moments was an opportunity for player tools that could lead to very different options. 
This kind of tool and system-based development is how we achieve a rich set of possibilities in an immersive simulation. Did I ever tell you about the time I took on a shadow beast? Unarmed? Still early in development, but that game is going to allow you to tell your own story at a level that uh, I don't believe any other game has. So, dry open for it uh, and, and uh, check it out. Alright, so we've made a bunch of progress going all the way back. We make a bunch of money for people. We've, uh, you know, we, we certainly uh, have had our influence on culture and all that. Um, but we're not done yet. Okay. Um, what I hope you leave here with is the idea that at the end of the day, um, Games are important, right? They're not just a way to pass some time the way they used to be when I was a kid. Games are important. Uh, like I said, we touch a lot of people's lives, we put a lot of money in people's wallets, we take a lot of money out of people's wallets. Uh, we are central to uh, not just Western culture, but Eastern culture now. Um, and we're unique, and we need to celebrate that. Okay. Um, but here's another reason why all this uniqueness stuff is important to think about and talk about. Uh, Opportunities to watch the birth and coming of age of a new medium of expression come along once a century, twice a century. Uh, they don't come around very often, okay? Uh, and the opportunity to be a part of that coming of age is even rarer. Uh, and here's the, here's the thing. Everyone in this room, whether you're a developer, publisher, or a player, has the opportunity to participate in that coming of age. You don't just have to observe. This is interactive, right? It's a game. So you can participate. So if you're a developer, here's what I would ask you to do. Exploit our unique characteristics. Don't settle for, you know, that low and medium expression state. Give players maximum ability to impact their story, to tell their own story. Uh, don't assume the technology will answer all questions. Uh, don't assume that VR is going to solve all of our problems. Uh, don't assume that games have to be about killing dragons or saving the world from alien invasion. In fact, I would beg you never to make another game about saving the world from alien invasion. You don't need anymore. Um, and uh, just the idea that uh, the art of game making is showing off how clever you are. Let players be creative, okay? Um, engage in that dialogue with players. That's what I would ask developers to do. Uh, do that, and our place at the adult table will be secure. If you're a publisher, this really doesn't have a whole lot to do with unique gameplay, but good lord, trust your creatives and your work. With all that focus testing you do, uh, and all the, um, just to ensure I know the work again, all the meddling you do, uh, four out of five games still fail in the marketplace. Four out of five of the games you ship fail, 80%. Uh, if I fail 80% of the time, just fire me, okay? Just fire me. Um, if you uh, let your creatives have a little bit more uh, rope, they will give you things like Journey and like Minecraft and like many more. Uh, and you might even make some more money. Gamers, okay, most of you are gamers in this room. Vote with your dollars, okay? Uh, instead of playing, I, I'm not going to name it, Game X, number 72 in the series, right? You all know what I'm talking about. Actually, it, could be, it could be any game, now that I think about it. Um, but support games that more explicitly express what games can do that no other medium can. Yes, I know there's an adrenaline rush of killing 4,000 aliens. I get that, okay? But there are games that can, can and do do more than that, that let you do more than that. Um, you can advance the state of the art every time you pick up a mouse 
or a keyboard or a controller. Right? Vote with your dollars. And if we all play our parts, if we all do that, uh, if we make games that, that share authorship and support games where you are participating in the telling of your own story instead of living out someone else's story, if we all do that, we will be the, the meme of the 21st century. There's a while back, I, I, this will tell you how stupid I am, I was at Pixar giving a, a, a talk about game narrative. And uh, there was a point where I said, movies were the medium of the 20th century, and games are the medium of the 21st. At Pixar. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, there was a quite lengthy silence <laughs> after that. But it's true. I was right, okay? If we play our cards right, we are the medium of the 21st century just as the movies were the medium of the 20th. Um, so I've told you what I think makes games unique and why I think that's important. Uh, for me, it's always been about collaborative storytelling. It's all about that shared authorship stuff. Uh, it's about recreating that feeling I had in 1978 playing D&D with my friends, with Bruce Sterling as my dungeon master. Um, and I know it's pathetic, okay, I, just, I know that. But you don't have to agree with it. But I, I really do ask you to consider what you think makes games unique and wonderful. Don't just go out and play games mindlessly. Think about it. What makes us unique and wonderful? Go out and make unique games if you're a developer. Go out and publish unique games if you're a publisher. Uh, don't settle for conventional games with prettier pictures, which is what a lot of the mainstream is giving us right now. Focus on our differences, and then imagine what they're going to say about us in the 22nd century. And that's what I got. Thank you. to speak does not make one intelligent.